You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Good morning, family. Buenos dias, mi familia. It's just incredible to be here with you today. I'm Carrie Stevens. I am married to Morgan Stevens. You could call me the pastor's wife, but I don't like that, so you can just call me Carrie. Um, <laughs> little church humor for you. So we're in the middle of our series on Esther for such a time as this, and it's been sort of up until now almost like a slightly scandalous Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Like, um, I know everybody's binging those right now. You know, two weeks ago, we have like this you know, party king who likes to have a good time and made some mistakes in his previous marriage. And uh, he's a little, he's a little downtrodden. And then lovely, you know, Queen Esther gets, arises from the ashes and she enchants him, right? And all we need is for them to like go and cut down a Christmas tree together and have that sparkly moment. And then maybe like adopt a Persian cat from the local animal shelter And then we can tie the whole thing up with a big red plaid bow, right? Hallmark Christmas movie. Except this week it's going to go a little away from the Hallmark Christmas movie uh, genre. And an evil force is going to arise and the Jewish people are going to get in a little bit of trouble. And I'm really excited to jump into this. So we are going to read Esther 3 together and see what happens next. So here we go. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Aharis' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Aharis' twelfth year, the pure, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Aharis, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. 
The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Aheresus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. Amen. Pretty bad story, right? To sum up the whole story so far... Uh, two weeks ago, if you haven't been with us, the king had this six-month-long party and got in this huge fight with the queen and stripped her of her crown. And then last week, an orphan girl named Esther arises and he chooses her as his queen, which is quite the fairy tale, isn't it? Unless you consider the fact that Esther had no choice in the matter and was put in a harem by an oppressive government. You know, I mean, there's that one small detail that we sometimes forget. And now this week, Esther's royal husband, he's declared that it's fine for this man, Haman, our villain in the story, to eradicate all the Jews in his kingdom, all the Jewish people. Now, it's important to know, at this point, Esther's been queen for seven years, okay? She's been there a while, and for All this time, she's kept the fact that she's Jewish a secret from everyone in the palace. And so it's hard to imagine what that would have been like for her. The king doesn't know. He really doesn't even know who he's dooming, right? Haman is not specific. And she's in a a difficult place. And standing between Haman's plot and the Jewish people arising up, is Mordecai. And today I want to look at Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, and Haman. And I want to look at their relationship. Because really, even though this book is titled Esther for good reason, the relationship between Mordecai and Haman and the choices that they make drive the plot of the story. And they're hopefully going to drive us to see something that God would like to share with us today. So we're going to look at Haman and Mordecai. We're going to look at the way that they were ancient enemies. We're going to talk about the present power they really had, and then we're going to look at the future redemption God has planned for all of us, but we're going to start with the juicy stuff, okay? Esther is a tale of ancient enemies. It's quite epic and exciting, and we're told at the beginning of this that Haman is an Amalekite, and he's also been named the highest-ranking official below the king. Now, we don't really know what Haman has done to deserve to become the highest-ranking official that everyone has to bow down to. It does seem a little strange that the king is commanding people to bow down to him because I want you to think about it. 
If he was a man people wanted to bow down to, wouldn't they bow down to him? So there's a little, a little bit of information there for us. And all of this in chapter 3 comes on the tail of a story in chapter 2 about Mordecai and how Mordecai thwarted an assassination attempt on the king. So we know that about Mordecai. We don't know how Haman got promoted, but we know that somehow thwarting an assassination attempt on the king wasn't enough to get Mordecai promoted, right? And we know that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Now, it could be Mordecai doesn't think Haman is worthy of bowing down to, certainly. He does seem like such an extreme person, Haman does, right? I mean, he gets offended by someone's disrespect, and he decides to rid the earth of their race. Like, that's a big leap, okay? Um, So it could be personal, but I don't really think it's just personal. Because the royal staff says it has something to do with the fact that Mordecai is Jewish, Okay, so we're pointed in that direction. However, Jewish law did not forbid bowing down to governmental authorities or giving them honor that's commanded. It's It's not against Jewish law. So it can't just be a religious problem. We're talking about a historical problem. And that's what's really going on here. Why does it matter so much that Mordecai won't bow to Haman? As modern Westerners, we, do, we miss so many cultural details, right, in the Old Testament when we read these stories because we don't know everything that the original audience knew. It's like when you try to explain 1980s movies to small children. They don't understand. Why didn't they just text each other? Oh, my gosh. So we're missing here the fact that not only is Haman a descendant of of Agag, right? Not only is he an Amalekite, but Mordecai is a descendant of a specific Jewish tribe. Mordecai is a Benjamite. And the most famous Benjamite in Jewish history, the most famous Benjamite was a man named Saul, who was crowned Israel's first king. Now, King Saul, his greatest failure and most memorable moment is directly tied to the Amalekite people. Saul disobeyed God hundreds of years before this, and he plundered the Amalekite people, and he took King Agag hostage in order to taunt his enemies. He enriched himself on the Amalekite people. Why is that important? Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Haman is a descendant of King Agag. These men are ancient enemies. And so here in Esther, we flash forward, and these two men, Mordecai and Haman, they have a chance to finish the feud that their ancestors began. What's going to happen? Well, before we get into what's going to happen next, I think we need to look at something really important. We need to acknowledge that the book of Esther is asking a lot of us by telling us this story. The book of Esther is asking us to look squarely in the face of our cultural histories. It's asking us to acknowledge that sometimes our present predicaments, our current dramas, 
and challenges and entanglements, they're directly connected to ancient rivalries and generational traumas. And sometimes we wish we could just forget them or gosh, we wish we could resolve them, right? And by introducing us to these ancient enemies, I think that the book of Esther, it's, it's daring us to hope that when we find ourselves in that situation, when the past is affecting our, our present, we could be the ones who could write a better ending than the people who came before us found. How? How can we do that? The book of Esther is, is showing us that we can do that through a better use of power. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the subtexts of Esther is the use of power. It, it shows us all these people in this story who all have some sort of power. And whatever power we have, the book of Esther, it's, it's asking us to see that, that, that it matters what we choose to do with the power that we have. It matters what we choose to do. We look here and we see that the line between keeping ancient enemies, right, or making new allies, it really comes down to how should I use the power I have been given? Because in our lives, just as in Haman's and Mordecai's lives, we always have access to present power. We always have some sort of power in our present. And to use that power wisely to turn our ancient enemies into our modern allies, I think there are two aspects uh, of power and power dynamics that the Bible teaches that are very present here in the book of Esther, and we need to look at them. And one is a positive, and one's a bit of a challenge. So first, we need to see that all human power is limited. All the people in the book of Esther have power of some kind, but it's always limited in some way, right? So the king has a lot of power, but apparently not enough power to make Vashti do what he wants Vashti to do. He sends seven men to get the woman and she doesn't come, right? Vashti has some power. She has the power to refuse the king, but she doesn't have enough power to stay queen, Mordecai has some power, Haman has some power, Esther has some power, but their power, it ebbs and it flows depending on the choices of the people around them in their exact circumstance. This story is showing us that all human power is limited in one way or another and that it's important if we want to live a wise life and do relationships well, we need to know that power is limited. And if you want to really live this lesson in real life, I personally recommend raising a child or four or more. All power struggles in our world, I say, begin in our homes at the table where there's a small child in a chair. Sometimes that child's in a high chair. They call it the high chair because the child's in charge. <laughs> you can cook a delicious, nutritious, bountiful, gourmet meal. <laughs> you can put it in front of that child and you cannot, you cannot believe it when that child refuses to eat the meal, right? Like it's shocking. 
three-year-olds in particular seem to be prone to not eating the delicious food you put in front of them. You could have been the safest, most loving, caring, you know, perfect parent every day of that child's life, and you put the food in front of them, and they're convinced it's poison. You're poisoning them. Broccoli, that's poison. Salad, are you kidding me? Poison. A casserole with too many unidentifiable ingredients is poison. Anything that's not dinosaur-shaped, breaded, and fried, poison, right? They'll refuse to eat it, and there's nothing you can do to make a three-year-old eat anything. Even so, we parents, we, it's cool. It's cool. We got this. We know what we need, right? We just need more power. Power. We just need more power. So we leverage what we can control in order to try to get the child to do what we know in our right minds is best for the child. And we're trying to do what's best for our kid. We do crazy, desperate things, okay? Parents do crazy, desperate things. We bribe them. That's easy, right? We serve that kid the same meal every night for two weeks, thinking we're going to wear them down. They'll get used to it. We take away desserts. We take away screen time. We tell that kid they're going to sit there in that chair till they take three bites. However, three-year-olds are a lot like well-trained military elite soldiers. And they know exactly what to do when they're being tortured by the enemy. So that three-year-old takes three bites, and you're so proud until they spit them out on the table, right? Or they take a bite, and they put the bite in their mouth, and they hold it in their mouth, and they refuse to swallow. And then they start crying because they have food in their mouth, and they don't want to swallow, and then they gag, and they throw up on you. (laughs) Or the three-year-old decides that sitting at the table is actually the funnest thing they've ever done, right? And you're amazed because this child with a 30-second attention span can spend two and a half hours at the table talking to themselves happily. Parents have a lot of power, but we don't have as much power as we often think we do because all human power is limited. And if we can see that all human power is limited, then we can see the second aspect of power, which is that the handling of power reveals who we really are. So what are we going to do with the power that we have? Well, what did our friends Haman and Mordecai do with their power? Haman decides to use his power to get more power to annihilate the Jewish people. Haman is revealed as a man of revenge. Mordecai is a little different. Mordecai does something different, okay? Mordecai takes what power he has, and he uses his power not to increase his power over others or to dominate, but instead he constantly leverages his power in order to rescue people, right? He takes in his orphan niece. He uses his power to make sure the king does not get assassinated. He tries to use his power to save the Jewish people. How did Mordecai know how to do this? 
somehow Mordecai is revealed as a man of principle. I don't know how Mordecai figured that out, but I know for us how we could figure that out because we have to see the man the king delights to honor. Later in this story, the king kind of realizes accidentally that he never honored Mordecai for rescuing him from the assassination attempt. And so he's thinking about that. He happens to run into Haman, I suppose. And he turns to Haman in Esther 6, and he says, Haman, what shall be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman (laughs) incorrectly assumes he's talking about himself, like Haman. And so he shoots for the moon, right? He's like, you need to put your robes on him and put him on this big, like, war horse. You know, make him look really awesome and put him up high and take him through the through the town and have somebody say this, this is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. What does this mean? Well, in ancient times, robes were very significant and they signified a passing, a sharing of power and status. And when you look in the Bible, there are multiple times robes are used in this way, right? Pharaoh, he puts his robes on Joseph, okay? Jonathan, the prince, puts his robes on his friend David. In the prodigal son, when the son returns, the father, he he robes him with his robes. Robes were a way of saying like, hey, however you would treat me, whatever you think about me as a powerful person, as a person of honor, I want you to now think of this person that way. So Haman thought, if I could get the king's robes, basically, then I'm the king then I'm good. Everything will be different for me. Everything will be better. And it's easy to look at that and think, oh, poor Haman, except we are the same so often, (laughs) right? We don't have kings who pass out robes, but we have influencers who will promote our thing. We have bosses who will increase our pay, give us a better title, let us be over more people, right? We have people in power that we look to and we think, if that high person would just come and down to my level (laughs) and pull me up with them, my life would be so much better. Can you imagine if you got retweeted by like some famous person, you'd be like, that's right. That person just retweeted me and you would retweet it, maybe like twice a week for about a month. Retweet the retweet. We want that too, don't we? And Haman really thought that that would change everything. But in an unbelievable reversal, of course, the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. I want you to go do that for my, my servant Mordecai, your enemy. And Haman has just finished building gallows, right? Like he's literally going to hang Mordecai on these gallows in his yard. And um, he knows now. He's doomed because he has plans to ruin the man the king wants to honor. I really believe this point in the story was Haman's last chance to rewrite it. I believe this was Haman's chance when he saw Mordecai up on that horse and he had to walk around telling everybody this is the man the king delights to honor. This is when uh, Haman could have rewritten the ancient feud, but he didn't. He went ahead with his plan. He put himself first. He decided to full steam ahead, still try to ruin Mordecai. And in the end, what happens to Haman? He ends up hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. 
Years after this story, another king came down from a high place. His name is Jesus. And he put on our robes. He identified as one of us. And when he rode into Jerusalem to be crucified, he didn't ride on a conquering horse, even though that is what his followers expected him to do. He rode in on a donkey, the transportation of the poor. And when he was paraded through the town, his name was shouted as a curse, not as honor. He was given robes by Roman soldiers to mock him. A crown was put on his head, not of gold, but of thorns. And Jesus, he did all of this when he had the power at any point to stop it. And in the end, because he rose from the dead and overcame death and lives again, he's been robed as king of kings and lord of lords. And he has chosen to take those robes and put them on us so that you receive the righteousness and the holiness and the blessing and the belonging so that you can be and I can be children of God. It's incredible when we think about it. It's amazing. And if we can really understand that, then we're ready to actually understand the future redemption God has planned for all of us. Uh, The last few weeks, I've developed a bit of a soft spot for Haman because I realized I am a lot like Haman. I've wanted more power many times in my life. I want to tell you two stories about times I've wanted more power. One didn't go so well and one went a little better. Uh, Recently, like a week and a half ago, (laughs) I was in a customer service situation, which if you want to know a power struggle, right, just get in a customer service situation. And I felt like the person who was supposed to be serving me, the customer, wasn't grasping something that was pretty obvious and simple. My teenager was there, he agreed with me, so. And it got a little combative and emotional and um, if you wanna know how I handled it, I really, did have to repent to the Lord later for being too Haman-y. In that moment, I might have tried to get up on my high horse a little and show this woman my robes. Jesus, in Matthew 5, many years before my customer service situation and many years after Mordecai and Haman, He said this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you, so that, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors, don't even the Hamans do the same. 
And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? I had a chance with that customer service person. I had a chance to do something out of the ordinary. And I didn't do it. I had a chance to love God most of all and obey his word. I had a chance to love a person most of all and be kind and merciful and understanding when she was not treating me that way. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Not only because he knows that's how peace is made, but because he knows it will save us if we will do it. It would have saved me from my sin if I had chosen to love this woman. God doesn't just love the Mordecais of the world. God loves the Hamans. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, Haman was in the world definition. Thank God he was, because that means we are too. Now, whether or not Haman loved God back is questionable, I admit. And yet, isn't that what makes God's love so powerful? Haman didn't have to love God back to be loved by God. We are loved by God when we're Haman's. And maybe if we don't use our power to reject or destroy our enemies, maybe, maybe, maybe they will bow to our all-powerful God one day and learn to love us too. Maybe ancient feuds and rivalries, injustices, will be bound up in that love and our enemies will learn to love us too. Maybe loving our enemies will save us. I believe it will. So my second story happened a few years ago. Um, I had an enemy a more severe situation than a customer service interaction. I had a bit of an enemy, and I watched this man have lots of power and make really bad choices and hurt a lot of people. And um, he was caught, and he repented, and he disappeared from my circles for several years. And then one day, I was in a room, and he walked in. And it like hit me, you know? I wasn't, I didn't know he was gonna be there. And I realized that what bothered me the most <laughs> was that I didn't have the power to make him leave. So I went to a mentor who did have the power to make him leave. <laughs> I told you this is a story about me wanting more power. And I aired my grievances, I let it be known what I thought. And my mentor was friends with this man, had been hurt by this man. 
And he understood. He's like, I understand. It's hard. It's complicated. And then he said this to me, and I will never forget it. He said, Carrie, he's repented, and he's working to change. And then he said, in the end, at some point, we're either people who believe in redemption or we aren't. And maybe that sounds simplistic, and maybe it is a little bit simplistic. But for me in that moment, I found peace. Because it made space for me to trust in the redemptive work of Christ. And not even in this man's ability to live out his repentance. It meant God was in charge. Redemption means God is in charge. And it means God will bring justice and God will be merciful. And God has us covered. And now that person who was once my enemy, I promise you, is one of my treasured friends. It's crazy. Took a lot of time and trust being won back and change and work on both our parts. But I'm so grateful for him now. And I learned this, which I remember in my best moments. Jesus is a very present power who has loved us, his enemies, so that we can experience a future redemption. He's a very present power. I don't know who you consider your enemy today. It could be someone at work. It could be someone in your family. It could be someone in this church. You definitely know who your enemies are on social media. Social media is like a Wild West shootout right now. But I know this. I know that God loves your enemy. And I know that God is calling you to love them too. Now to be clear, if you're in an abusive relationship, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying stay and take abuse. Sometimes loving another person is removing yourself from their power so that they can't sin against you or God anymore. Please remember that. But God loves our enemies. He wants to redeem our ancient feuds. He wants to bind up our rivalries. And so, I just, I'm just standing here. You're my family. This is, if you're new, I'm sorry, I'm weird. <laughs> Welcome to the other part of the Stevens family. This has always been about family. And families love each other no matter what. So today, I want to pray for us and I want to ask you to love one another even when it feels like we're at odds, even when we don't understand where the other person's coming from, even when we voted for different people or we don't understand our histories or the cultural weight of the past 
with racial injustice or societal injustice or gender injustice feels so heavy and you think, I don't know what to do with that. I want you to trust in Jesus to redeem it and not just in us. He's going to fix it all someday. He has a future redemption for us. He's going to take everything that's wrong and, and unfair and crooked and he's going to make it straight and good and right. That's what we're here for. So we look to the redemption. Let's pray. God, we come before you. Lord, I raise my hands and I encourage anyone to do the same. And I say, I've been a Haman. I've wanted power over the narrative. I've wanted power over the choices. I've wanted power for, to make people see and do what I think is right. God, I, I give you all my power. I leverage it for your love. I ask you to hem me in, to hem us in as a people. I pray you remind us that we're family first and that we can let go of the feuds and look toward the redemption and that God, we, we commit to the work. It's not easy. We commit to the work. We're not gonna sit back. But at the same time, Lord, remind us that we're in it together. You've made us brothers and sisters, but we're family. And God, we look for your redemption and we trust. We trust that our victory song on the other side is going to be one of praise and glory to the God who did what, what no man or woman could ever do. Jesus, thank you for being our King. Thank you for delighting in us and giving us your robes. I pray we would wear them well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.